Amen. Let's bow and pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we ask that you would draw near to us, that you would capture our, our minds and hearts this morning with the truth of your Word. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to preach faithfully, that what's true in your Word would be true and presented here in this sermon, that your Son Jesus would be exalted, and that you would draw our eyes to Him, to the hope that's found in knowing Him. We ask you to come and work in us this morning for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, are you satisfied with where you're at spiritually? One of the great dangers in the Christian life is to become complacent. To become complacent in your walk with God. Well, how does that, that start? I think it likely starts with becoming satisfied, comfortable with where you're at spiritually, meaning not striving on, not, not giving yourself to whatever it was in the past that God used to bring fruit in your life, like not giving yourself to those commitments, not giving yourself to those disciplines, not giving yourself to those means of grace that God uses to build up believers. Let me give you a scenario. Someone hears the gospel and they believe in Jesus Christ in their youth, their teenage years, their college years, they're growing. They're zealous for God. They're learning about God's Word. They're taking books off the bookstall and reading them, eating them up. They love spending time with other believers and have encouraging conversations. They get up on Sunday morning excited to come to church, ready to hear God's Word. They're what we would call on fire for the Lord. And maybe you can remember a time like that in your life where you were on fire for the Lord. And I don't mean to say that every day we need to feel like we're on fire for the Lord. What a wonderful blessing those seasons of our lives are. It's not meant to be every single day. Certainly there are valleys and certainly there's suffering and trouble and sorrow. So I don't mean to suggest that every day that we're on fire, but what I mean to suggest is that we're growing. We're growing in trusting the Lord. Now continue on with this scenario. You're on fire in your youth and college years, and then life goes on, and you get older. And anyone in this room who's somewhat older can tell you life gets busy. It gets full. There's responsibilities with family. There's responsibilities with work. It doesn't matter how well you manage your Google Calendar. Life just feels busy. And then all of a sudden, you see yourself backing away from those commitments that you once gave yourself to. You're skipping times in the Word for sleep, or maybe just because you need to get out the door more quickly. You find yourself opening the Bible mainly on Sunday mornings when the pastor directs you to open the Bible. Your prayer life turns into really just praying before dinner or meals, which is a good thing to do, but not a lot of prayer outside of that time. You were once regular in your attendance in corporate worship, but you find yourself taking Sundays off or maybe traveling and going enjoying things on the weekend, or like what happened across this city in 2020 and 2021 when people never got back in the habit of going back to corporate worship and attending church. Commitments you once gladly and regularly gave yourself over to have changed. And that fire that once felt hot and warm, it started to, to fade. It's not as warm as it used to be. And slowly, spiritual decline has started to happen. Snacking on sin and no longer hungering 
for what is right and good. Alan Ross, he puts it like this. For some reason, God's people are susceptible to spiritual declension when they are satisfied or fulfilled in their spiritual quest. When the goal is achieved, perhaps a letdown occurs from the struggle, then a complacency sets in, and vows and commitments are forgotten. During such a relaxation, it's relatively easy to drift from an earlier zealous commitment to God, and this incipient decay soon shows up in disobedience. We've been following the life of Jacob. We've said in the book of Genesis, what we've seen is we've been in that book in our sermon series, real life illustrations. And you may wonder sometimes, how did these men get in the, the hall of faith, so to speak? How is their faith commended in such a way when we see certainly times of transformation and grace and growth in the Lord, but also these valleys and times of fear and failure? Chapter 34, where we were last week, a dark chapter, a low moment in the life of Jacob. Then this morning, we're in chapter 35, and we see kind of another high point. Probably the mountaintop of Jacob's life is what we're looking at this morning, and we see God's grace to call Jacob. Remember your past commitment. Remember the vow you made to worship. And God, by His grace and the power of His Word, causes Jacob to persevere. That's what we're going to see this morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. We're going to be in this whole chapter this morning. If you'll turn with me now in your pew Bible, the best way to stay engaged this morning in the sermons to look at a copy of God's Word. If you turn to page 29, in your pew Bible. We're going to be in Genesis 35 this morning, so page 29. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you. That's our gift to you. Take that home, read it. We'd be happy to connect you with someone here at our church that could help you read through God's Word. Before I read through this passage, let me give you the main idea of this passage this morning. If you're taking notes, the main idea, God strengthens us to keep our spiritual commitments and persevere in obedient worship. God strengthens us to keep our spiritual commitments and to persevere in obedient worship. That's what we see this morning, the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 35. Let me read beginning in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alone Bakuth, 
God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padnaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We're going to make our way through this whole passage this morning. And there's three scenes that I want to point your attention to. The first scene is in verses 1 through 8, new beginnings. The first scene, verses 1 through 8. If I could ask Sound Booth, if you could turn me up just a little bit, that would be great. Thank you. Verses 1 through 8, new beginnings. Well, Jacob had a vow that he had not yet fulfilled. It was a commitment that he hadn't kept. So if you remember back in chapter 28, verse 20, Jacob made a vow to return back to Bethel to worship God. He was under obligation to the Lord to return back to that place. That was his, his vow, but he, we read last week that he stopped short of obedience. <clears throat> he stopped just 20 miles short of Bethel, and he remained in Shechem, living among a godless people, the, the Canaanites. So, so basically, he, he almost obeyed, which we've said is called disobedience. He settled. He forgot a vow that he had made almost 30 years prior, and instead settled in disobedience. Well, this chapter picks up with God intervening. Jacob seems to have forgotten his vow, forgotten that he needed to follow through on this comfortable 
in the city of Shechem. He likely stayed there because it was a prosperous city. It was a better place for trade. And this chapter picks up with God graciously intervening. Look there at verse 1. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God was calling him to follow through. Now, this wasn't the first time that God called him to follow through. Back in chapter 31, verse 3, God reminds Jacob, you need to return to Bethel. And God promised he would be with him, yet Jacob hadn't gone. And his failure to obey cost his family dearly. We see them being victims of evil. And then later, perpetrators of evil, the consequences for disobedience for Jacob's family, they were severe. They were victims and they were giving themselves also over to evil, all because Jacob delayed in obeying his vow. He delayed in obeying God. Not all the evil was his fault, but he positioned his family in a place that was comfortable for him and disobedience in a prosperous land. He, he didn't seem to be concerned with his vow. Well, again, I reference back to the introduction, and I would ask you, Christian, I wonder where you're getting comfortable in your spiritual life. Where are you getting comfortable with sin? Maybe excusing it, ignoring it, justifying it. In your mind, we say this a lot around here, that if we snack on sin, we should not expect to grow in our hunger for God. Maybe there's commitments or obligations like we talked about. That Sunday morning is a chance for us to reflect on our lives. Again, if you've come in here on Sunday morning and this week you just haven't given yourself over to God's Word much, that changes on Sunday morning because we spend time in the Bible. We hear God's Word. We read God's Word. You center the preaching of God's Word. If we've struggled with prayerlessness this past week, that stops on Sunday morning because we come together as God's people and we pray. And it's our desire for each of us to lock arms in this Christian life and start off Sunday afternoon and Monday in a way that was different maybe from last week. This is God's gift to us. What the writer of Hebrews calls is necessary for us to encourage one another up, to stir one another up, and all the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. I wonder where it is that you need to consider stepping out of being comfortable with not following through on spiritual commitments. Well, God was calling Jacob in verse 1, go to Bethel. And it wasn't just like, hey, get out of Shechem. That's a bad place for you to be. He's calling him up to Bethel to build an altar, which means come up here and worship. He's calling him out of a dark place to go and worship. Now, Jacob already had faith in God, but he needed to be continually called out of that dark place, out of disobedience to come and worship God. You see, God never stops graciously pursuing His people. We have to regularly confess our sins, folly, disobedience, bad choices that we make. Yet God's always faithful. He's faithful to call us, arise, get out of sin and darkness, go up and worship. In verse 2, we see this time there's immediate obedience. Jacob goes and he worships. And notice his testimony there in verse 3. He speaks of God as the one who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. What he's doing, he's testifying to his whole family of God's faithfulness. 
He's reminding his family that God has always been with him. He's testifying to his family that, that God was with him throughout every day of distress. You know, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's your testimony. God's always been with you. You, know, you can look back, the Christian life, it, it doesn't mean that that means we won't have trouble, we won't have hardship. All the songs we sang leading up to this point in the sermon have reminded us there will be trouble in this life. The Bible tells us that. Uh, we shouldn't count on our days simply being free of trouble, but we can count on the faithfulness of God, His own presence to cheer and to guide, to help us, to cause us to persevere. So if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can look back on your life and you might see distress. You might see hardship. You'll see sin. You'll see suffering. You'll see sorrow, trouble you've had. But isn't it your testimony that God's been with you every step of the way? People may have let you down. You let other people down. We all do. But God's never let you down. He's always faithful. He's always true. You see, Christian, your life, it's not defined by your past trouble. Your life is defined by God's faithfulness. All that you have, every good thing in your life, credit and glory, goes to Him. Your life's defined by Him. The power of Christ in you that came inside of you, the Holy Spirit, at the moment of conversion when you first believed in Jesus. You know, I also want to say fathers. This is what spiritual leadership looks like in your home. I said last week, don't make spiritual leadership in the home so complex that you just neglect to lead in the home. Something like simple, like around the lunch table this afternoon, telling your family how good God has been to them, reminding them of all of God's goodness. Fathers, don't, don't assume that your kids are just aware of all the testimonies of God's grace in your life. Talk about God regularly. Talk about your conversion. Talk about ways that God's blessed you. We live in Charlotte. There's a lot of nice stuff here we take for granted that God's blessed us with. Talk about the house God's given you, the education they get to have. Point their attention to the Lord. And church family, isn't that a way we can encourage one another? You know what happens when there's a vacuum of encouraging conversation? That's when grumbling comes in. It's when complaining. We complain about work. We complain about life. We complain about COVID restrictions. We complain about this and that. Well, fill that vacuum up with proactive encouragement. If you talk more and more about how good God is, how good God has been to you, if you let that be your conversation after the sermon on Sundays, I think you'll see your relationships change and transform, and you just might lift somebody up who's discouraged this morning. Because no matter how discouraged we may be, we can look and see God's faithfulness. See, this was a turning point for Jacob. He's pointing his whole family, remember God's goodness, as he's being called to remember his vow. It is not a burden to keep commitments to the Lord. It's a joy. And we remember God's goodness and his faithfulness. His love compels us toward obedience. We read here in verse 2, before they could go up and worship, some things needed to happen to prepare themselves. Jacob, he called his household to three actions there in verse 2. Put away the foreign gods, purify yourselves, change your garments. First, he called them to put away the foreign gods. These foreign gods, they were idols. Now, they likely were also made of, of precious material. So they were of some value. They involved, this involved basically handing over riches. And we see in verse 4, there was also jewelry, earrings, 
that they were called to hand over. So basically hand over something that is of value. Those things needed to be left behind. And you may wonder, well, why did they have foreign gods? I thought they followed the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Where, where do they get these false gods and, and idols? Well, it could have been that Simeon and Levi got them when they plundered the city of Shechem. That's the likely place they got all of these false gods. And for whatever reason they were holding on to them, whether it was because of some sort of material value or because of some sort of superstition that they could find power and strength, we see here that they had those idols. They were living among the Canaanites, and we see they had not completely maintained their faith. Now, no other gods would be tolerated if they were to worship the one true God. If they were to move forward in faith, they would need to leave those false gods behind. Well, Jacob and his family, they were leaving behind those false gods to to worship. But I, I wonder what idols or false gods in your life you need to leave behind and worship. And you might look at me like I'm crazy, like saying, Dave, I don't have any idols in my house. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't have any carved figurines. Certainly, you can go to other places in the world. I've, I've been to Thailand before, and I saw across uh, the cities there in Bangkok and other places, like wooden carved figurines, idols for sale there that people would take and carry in their pocket as a form of worshiping. I was false gods, powerless figurines. It may not look like that for you here in America and here in Charlotte. Oftentimes, you may hear a reference to the idols of the heart. Where is your heart drawn to try to find power apart from God? Well, think about that. Idols in your life. You may not have carved wooden idols, but maybe it looks something like this. Jesus plus the pursuit of wealth. That wealth material gain. That's an idol for you. And then it may not seem like an idol because you put Jesus right on on top of that, the pursuit of wealth, of material gain that is rivaling the affection of your heart to be pointed towards Christ alone. It, it, It could be like thinking that Jesus plus achievement, achievement in career, achievement at at school, that if you just have Jesus plus achievement, well, then you're happy. What are those things you're looking to, to find happiness and security and power apart from, from Christ? Whatever it is that's pointing your affection. Sometimes it's just, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm also allowing for sinful indulgences. Maybe it's, hey, I, I'm a Christian, but I also really want to have this certain image. Maybe it's a physical image of your body. Maybe it's your reputation amongst co-workers, family members, neighbors, that you really want to protect that, that that's what's going to bring you power. That's what's going to bring you joy. Well, anything that would point your affection and attention away from Jesus Christ, a lust of the heart can become a type of, of idol. Now, consider what that is, brother and sister in the Lord, and ask for God's help to turn away from that, to be renewed in worship and fellowship with God. You can't move forward in worshiping God if you don't leave those idols behind. Second, Jacob called his household to purify themselves. Now, they needed more than just a change of geography. Sometimes we think that our geographical location or our circumstances, those are the problem. Yes, them being in Shechem, that was a problem they needed to get out. But they needed more than just a change of location. They needed a change of heart. You see, purification, it's talking about an inward purification of the heart. 
But this ritual of purification, it typically involved like a, a physical washing, a bathing, shaving, uh, washing of the clothes. And we see these types of washings in the Old Testament. You see, worship required that you be clean inwardly and that you be clean outwardly. What was needed first inwardly, a pure heart to worship God. And then the outward purification, it was seen as an expression of that inward reality. Well, Christian, does that sound familiar? It's baptism. We've got two baptisms today. In Jesus Christ and in the New Covenant and the New Testament, we have the ordinance of, of baptism. It's an outward washing that Jesus commands of every believer upon profession of their faith in Jesus. We're very clear that baptism does not make you a Christian. Baptism, going through waters, can't possibly cleanse your heart. But rather, out of obedience to Jesus, those who have already put their faith in Jesus take on this outward sign that Jesus has given out of obedience to Him. You see, to become a true worshiper of God, it's not merely being baptized and joining a church. Just because you were sprinkled as an infant, does not mean that you're a Christian. It doesn't mean your heart's right with God. Just because you celebrate Christmas or Easter doesn't mean that your heart is right with God. You need to be purified inwardly. You see, to become a true worshiper of God, you must receive cleansing for your sins against God. You see, many people try outwardly to try to clean up their sin, maybe making a New Year's resolution or trying to do better things, trying to kind of cancel out bad things you've done with some good work that you've done. But that's not Christianity. It's not the way of Jesus. And that's good news that that's not that way because you and I can't possibly repay a holy God for the sin we've committed against Him. There's nothing we can do to make up for that. Christianity is not you pulling up your bootstraps and trying to live a better life. You see, we don't buy into the myth that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. We buy into the truth that forgiven people, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, are changed in this life and therefore in the next life live with Him forever. You know, if you're here this morning and you're hearing this message, and in just a few moments you'll see baptism. We want to be clear with you that the greatest need you have this morning is not to try to live here, leave here and live a better life. The greatest need you have is to be purified in your heart. And we're told in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or purify us from all of our unrighteousness. And so we would call you to turn away from your sin, to believe in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross as payment for your sin, as His resurrection from the dead, bringing you new life, meaning a new heart, to obey God and to worship Him and serve Him. If you've come this morning and you want to know more of what it looks like to trust in Jesus, talk with someone who brought you or talk with any of us at the door afterwards. We'd be happy to talk with you more about what it would look like to trust in Jesus Christ today. Well, third and finally, Jacob called them to change their garments. This involved physically taking off old, dirty clothes, washing them, and putting on new and clean clothes. It's the metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament book of Ephesians. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 22 through 24, Paul used this metaphor of changing garments to direct Christians to put off the old self, 
to put on the life of Christ. It was a metaphor using garments. It describes repentance and turning from sin, that if you're a Christian, repentance and turning from sin is a daily activity. Repenting and trusting in Jesus is how the life of a Christian is characterized. Well, Jacob called his household to prepare themselves to worship. In verse 4, they they obey immediately, and now they're ready to go up and worship. In verse 5, we see that God protects them just like he said he would. A, A terror from God, meaning the fear of the Lord, fell on the surrounding nations, preventing them from attacking Jacob. God provided a path and a way safely for them to come and to worship him. And as they arrived, Jacob built an altar and called the place El Bethel, meaning God of Bethel. In other words, thou fulfilled all by God's grace, all by the power of his word calling Jacob to arise. Jacob may have forgotten his vows, but God was faithful to make sure they were kept. Jacob delayed obedience to his vows. And I wonder again, I wonder where you are delaying obedience in your life. Putting off, turning away from a sin that you know is wrong. You really, Christian, don't want to give yourself over to. What is it that's keeping you today from saying, Lord, help me to turn away from that. I want to follow you in obedience and worship today. You know, every member of our church has signed our church covenant. It's a list of spiritual commitments We make those commitments when we join this church, and we regularly need to revisit those and pray for God's help. That's why we read those six times a year at our members' meetings, to remind ourselves of the commitments that we've made together as a church. And I think it'd be a good practice this week. Pull those up on your phone. They're on our website. Pray those for your own soul, for your family members, for your church family. Read over those commitments. Don't forget them. And I would encourage all of us here today, what area of spiritual growth do we need to give ourselves over to? Maybe something that we once were very active in, like spending time regularly in the Word, or maybe even evangelizing and sharing your faith with others, but you need to revisit that commitment and ask for God's grace to renew your life. Well, look in verses 9 through 15, what we see here are second scene, new blessings. Verses 9 through 15, new blessings. God called Jacob to come up to Bethel to make an altar and worship. And in verse 9, we see that God appeared to Jacob there and he blessed him. So look at this, obedience and worship was followed by blessing, meaning the presence of God. That's the greatest blessing you can know, God's presence. You may read what we see in verses 9 through 12 and think, well, this sounds familiar. Is this just Jacob hearing the same thing he's already heard from God before? Well, yes and no. Meaning, yes, God confirms these blessings that were already promised back in chapter 28. So so generally, they're the same. But what's new here in this chapter, they're said more strongly, they're expanded. And what's also new, Jacob is standing there on the land that God promised to give him. He's been gone for 30 years, and now he's back in return. So if we think about what's different, the promises, they're expanded and they're given in a stronger fashion. Look in verse 10. We see a second time that Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So, right? Yes, God already had given Jacob a new name of Israel. But when that happened, back in chapter 32, Jacob was not yet in the promised land of Canaan. So it's almost like God already changed his name, 
but had not yet come to a point of completion because Jacob wasn't home yet, meaning the place he was supposed to be in the promised land. So this is almost an affirmation from God, a repeating to assure Jacob of God's faithfulness. Now God pronounces this new name to Jacob as he stood on the very ground that God would give him and his descendants. These blessings as they're being pronounced, this is the second time in the Bible God reveals himself saying, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, that name is El Shaddai. Now, traditionally, El Shaddai is a name of God that is understood as meaning the God who is sufficient. The God who is sufficient. That name, it emphasizes the power and the sovereignty of of God. Think about that. Jacob, standing in the promised land, being reminded of promises he's already heard, but here is El Shaddai, God Almighty, proclaiming to him that God is able to fulfill all of his promises assurance found in the name of God that he is mighty and he is is able. The following promises of nations and kings and and land, all the promises that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that were confirmed in Genesis chapter 17, they're now pronounced to Jacob by God Almighty himself, given before but now given even more strongly. Think about this. He's told here kings would come from him. That's something that's new. Well, the line of his son Judah would be a line of kings. A royal line would come from his son Judah. From that line came David and Solomon. And from that line in the New Testament, the king of kings, Jesus. Jesus came from Judah. The king who could do what only the Son of God could do, meaning he was fully God and and fully man, crowned the king of kings after he laid down his life willingly to die on the cross and pay the penalty for sins, proving he's the king of kings by resurrecting from the dead three days later. No one's ever defeated Satan and sin and death by dying a real physical death, buried, and then three days later getting up from the dead. Jesus Christ, the king of kings, he came from Judah and the moment's being promised right here in the book of Genesis. We also see that there's going to be not only a nation that's going to come from him, meaning the nation of Israel, as we see the 12 tribes here, but look at this phrase, a company of nations. You know what I think that means? I think it means the Gentiles are coming. People from all the earth are going to be grafted into this line of Jacob, a nation, the nation of Israel would come from him. But all nations, like the sand on the seashore, so would his descendants be. God delivered those promises, assuring Jacob of the power of his promise. What we see here, this call to keep a spiritual commitment, it's reinforced by promises from God, by the the word of God. And I think there's something important for you to consider here this morning, Christian. If you're going to keep spiritual commitments... If you're going to walk in obedience and in worship, you need to regularly rehearse the promises of God found in the Bible. Sunday morning, it's just a rehearsal. It really is. We're rehearsing what God's already done in Jesus Christ, the gospel. We're looking at the present and saying, well, therefore, how are we called to live and strengthened by the power of Christ in us to live? And we're looking forward to that great day yet to come when Jesus Christ 
returns. There will be a day when congregations don't ever break up. We will break up here in just a little bit, depending on how much longer I want to go in the sermon. But there will be a day when we don't break up. We stay together, God's people, forever worshiping Him. Until that day, if we want to keep our spiritual commitments, we need to regularly rehearse the promises of God. And the only way I think we can do that is to be in the Word of God. So yes, Sunday mornings, we need to sit under the regular preaching and teaching of God. But I also want to encourage you, don't let Sunday morning be the only time you open up your Bible. You just shouldn't expect to grow that much spiritually if this is the only time that you open up your Bible. And and you may even think, well, you know, like this is good, but like sometimes I just feel like uh, my mind is is distracted when I'm in the Bible. There's so much to do. And sometimes I feel like I don't get a lot out of it. And you know what? I preach sermons and sometimes I have to remember what I preached Sunday. Like if you ask me tomorrow, like morning, like, hey, what did you preach on? I might have to think, uh, where were we yesterday? But isn't that a lot like meals? I mean, how many meals have you eaten in 2022? If I asked you, what did you have for lunch Thursday? Who could answer like that? Not many of you. Maybe if it was a really good lunch, you didn't forget that. But if you think about, what did you have for dinner Tuesday? Uh, what were a couple of dinners like last month that you had? Well, there's so many meals we've forgotten in 2022, but didn't God use those to bring you physical strength? Didn't he use those to nourish you, to keep you going? Some of those meals may not have been good, and they weren't memorable for good reason. But God used them to strengthen you. I mean, think about our times in the Word. We may not, re- may not remember everything we read in the Bible. You may not remember every sermon, but God uses it to strengthen you spiritually. God uses those times to nourish you spiritually. Keep giving yourself to the Word of God, and you can expect to continue to be changed. We need God's promises regularly rehearsed to us that we might persevere third and final scene, verses 16 through 29. Scene three, new joys and new sorrows. New joy and new sorrows. So far, this whole scene, it's a tremendous step forward in God's plan of redemption. There was a new beginning, a new blessing, but now we see New joy, new sorrow. Isn't that what the Christian life is like? You should expect joy in the Christian life. But it will also involve pain and sorrow, this side of glory. We try to equip you for that, the equipping our class. I'm so thankful we had 13 weeks of a theology of suffering because none of us want to be surprised by suffering. The Bible, if we read it, we will not be surprised by suffering. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered. And as we follow Him, this side of glory we too will suffer. We'll all finally suffer. If Christ doesn't return first, we will all finally suffer death. But in our sorrows, there's joy. That's what we see here in this chapter. There's the joy of a new birth, a baby boy, but with that, the sorrow of death. So back in chapter 30, when the Lord gave Joseph as a son to Rachel, we see she was wanting still another son. Joseph's name means add or may he add. And we see back in in chapter 30, Rachel saying, after she received a son in Joseph, may he add another son. God, give me another son. The Lord does that here in verses 16 through 18. We see though that Rachel went into hard labor, which means she was dying in the act of childbirth. Her dying words in verse 18 were to name this son Ben-Oni, meaning son of sorrow, capturing a moment of anguish. 
and pain as she died. Yet at the end of verse 18, Jacob changes his name to a more positive name, to Benjamin, which means son of the, of the right, which means son of the, the right hand, the favored side or the place of, of honor. Benjamin would become a son of honor or even a favored son. With that joy of that son, it came sorrow. Rachel died in childbirth. And this is the second death we see in this chapter. Back in verse 8, Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse, died, and now Rachel dies. There's joy here, and there's, there's sorrow. The joy of new birth and the sorrow of a generation coming to a close. At the same time with Benjamin, there's a new line. The 12 tribes of Israel are completed here. We see those listed in verses 23 through 26. They're completed with Benjamin. From his line came a very important person in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul came from the line of of Benjamin. We see the missionary work of the Apostle Paul, and think about this, through the labor of the Apostle Paul, a company of nations would be given to Jacob. A company of nations meaning preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the end of the earth, would come through the line of Benjamin. And the work of the Apostle Paul and those churches that he planted as an apostle. Well, the joy, it turns to more sorrow, as in verse 22, we see Jacob's son, Reuben, and, and wickedness. You know, you read these stories, and you're like, what in the world's going on? We have all this, like, joyful stuff, and here's some crazy, wicked stuff here. Again, sadly, the experiences we have this side of heaven. We see Reuben. He dishonors his father and his father's wives. He was outraged the last chapter at immorality done to his sister, but now he's in the middle, the perpetrator of rampant immorality, an offense of incest. And it seems that he may have done this evil to keep Rachel's servant, Bilhah, from becoming the favored wife over his mother, Leah. All we see here is that Israel heard of it. And I think he was probably going to deal with it later. The picture here, though, from joy to sorrow to anger. And then finally, the third death in the chapter, verses 28 to 29, Isaac takes his last breath. He dies. Esau and Jacob come back together for a sad moment to bury him. And this brings to a close the story of Isaac and Jacob. These moments of sorrow and death mark the end of an era. You probably feel the sorrow as you read it, yet there was also joy that we see here in this chapter. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is unfolding. We see descendants. We see the beginning of the 12 tribes, a great nation of Israel that would show the light of who God is to the nations. They're standing there already in the land that God has promised to give them safe and secure. He's protecting them. It was a time of sorrow, and it was a time of joy. And Jacob's story, as it comes to a close, I think it calls us, as those who would follow God, to regularly repent of our sin, by God's grace to persevere and to follow His direction for our lives, to not give up when we struggle with fear and failure, but rather to seek God's help and the power of His Word to persevere and to follow through. You see, Jacob saw the beginning of the blessing, but this blessing pointed forward. It pointed forward to what God would do in His Son, Jesus Christ. It would point it forward to what God would do in sending Jesus to bring God glory in all the earth, to make disciples of all nations in the name of Jesus Christ. And this whole story in chapter 35, it started with a vow. 
Well, you know, in just a few moments, we've got two that are coming, and they're going to take a vow. And after that vow, they'll be baptized. You see, before someone's baptized, which is the initiation rite into the local church, you take vows. Baptism itself is even a type of vow that you're united to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through faith in Him. You're united to Him, and therefore, you will live as one is united to Him by God's grace for the rest of your life here on earth. This pledge given at baptism, it looks forward. It looks forward to a life spent in worship and obedience to God, a life of following Jesus by God's grace. Well, Christian, look back this morning on the vows you made at your baptism. Some of you made those vows 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Don't forget the importance of those vows. Don't let your heart settle in a place of complacency. Don't settle like Jacob did in disobedience. And when we do, may we hear the Word of God calling us to arise, to leave behind that life of idolatry and false worship, to renew worship with the one true God. Philippians chapter 1, we hear this assurance of grace, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is committed to us. He is so faithful, and therefore we walk in faithfulness. Christian, remember your baptism and seek God's grace today to persevere in obedience and worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help to remember. We need your grace to obey. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, even as we close out this time, being reminded of his faithfulness. And as we see baptism, may we be reminded that this visual picture of baptism points to your faithfulness to your people through Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray you'd work in us this morning for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.